it means always being a good actor, even if the law does not require certain types of conduct. Welcome to What's Ethical, a podcast sponsored by Warburton Advisors, where thought leaders engage on how they influence others and master ethical dilemmas, all with the aim towards helping listeners deliver a triple bottom line. My guest today is Rebecca Reftig, a blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and DeFi expert. Last year, Rebecca was recognized as one of the top 100 women lawyers in New York City by Crane's New York Business, a testament to her expertise in litigation and enforcement matters. She's currently a partner at Manette's Financial Services Group, focusing on fintech. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks so much for having me, Beth. Well, let's start. Uh, Many of the listeners are either involved in fintech or really just interested in how they can learn more. So it would be really helpful to hear, how did you end up in the fintech space? Was it intentional? What has really inspired you to build your practice in that space? So my very first foray into tech was not into fintech. I worked on the LimeWire litigation back when I was at Cravath, where I started my career, which was really about peer-to-peer file sharing. So that sort of sparked my interest in the law and technology and the intersection of the two and how they work together. It was one of the most creative cases I worked on, um, and there were really novel issues. You know, it was around the same time it had similar um, issues with respect to Napster and Grokster and all those old cases about file sharing. And there was always a little bit of tech in what I did subsequent to that. Um, And then I got interested in Bitcoin and blockchain around 2012, just intellectually. But I didn't do anything with it for years. And I didn't have a specific interest in fintech alone, although I worked on cases for NCR Corporation and things like that in the past. But I really wanted to be entrepreneurial as a lawyer, um, so a business person and a lawyer. And um, I just started pursuing my interest in blockchain that way. And then once you're in blockchain, you're in fintech, because I think of it as a subset of the fintech umbrella. And so I've really been moving forward with that interest and that passion for the last four years. And like I found with LimeWire, this is the most creative way to be a lawyer because all of fintech is so new and trying to think about ways to work with innovative technology in sort of a legacy system has been really interesting for me. In terms of learning more about it, some of that is just natural intellectual curiosity, reading medium posts, seeing what else is out there. If you're interested in crypto, being on crypto Twitter, um, following VCs who invest in fintech, things like that, just making it part of your day-to-day learning process, which is what I still do. Awesome. Yeah, it is true. Once you're a professional and you're in your specialty, it doesn't mean that you can't pivot. And if you have that lifelong curiosity, it also, you know, you can learn along the way. Like you don't have to make the decision before you pivot, right? As long as, you know, sometimes we all think of CLE as a requirement, but instead, especially now, a lot of the law firms and the law schools have so many great programs And it does seem like a vast majority of them, at least this quarter, have been cybersecurity, fintech, privacy, all the issues that sort of overlap there. I think especially given the 
stage we've been in for the last almost year where we've been, you know, quarantined or otherwise had our life changed. I think technology and including and especially financial services technology is going to play a more critical role um, in everyone's lives going forward. And, and I think has given everybody the mindset to really allow for um, innovation around financial technology in a whole new way because they realize you don't have to walk into your bank necessarily, you know, something like right. that. Yeah, it's a silver lining for certain sectors, and this is one of them. Yeah, that's right. So let's pivot a little bit. It's a question that I ask all the guests because we do sort of grapple as compliance risk and legal professionals, as well as a lot of the entrepreneurs that are listeners. What's the difference between legal requirements and ethical behavior? And I just generally say, you know, what is, what is, ethics mean to you, Rebecca, and really just sort of give us a sense of when you're in your professional realm, how you deal with it in the professional sense. A lot of the guests will talk about morals, right? Which might be for your personal life, but when you step in and you're giving advice to um, clients, how do you sort of deal with those ethical issues? Really, what is what does it mean to you? I think it means always being a good actor, even if the law does not require certain types of conduct. So just to use an example, in a blockchain company or a finance, you know, a fintech type of company where you may have good arguments for why you don't have to comply with a certain regime. And so you don't necessarily go one way or the other to a regulator to get approved or not approved. You still need to have all the tools and the building blocks to show you've been a good actor in this space. So let's say you don't have AML KYC requirements. If you can bring in somebody who will still monitor, let's say, activity on the blockchain with respect to your software protocol or something like that, you should still do that to show that you've been an ethical, good actor. And that's what I think we're always aiming for. I think especially with innovation and with something like blockchain, which has a little bit of a, you know, questionable history here and there, um, and that people may associate with criminal activity, I think it's just being a good actor. Um, and I'd separate that from morals, but it's probably somewhat similar. But I think it's so that if you ever have to defend your company, you don't just say we've done the bare minimum, but we've done more than that to show that we really believe in the space and we stand behind our product. And if you do stand behind your product, doing the right thing is never a hard question. Yeah, thank you. As I was listening to you, I think of good business judgment, right? Um, and when you look at DOJ and the pronouncements about what is an effective compliance program, some of what you just said is really embedded there, which is it's not going to be prescriptive and say you need to do these three things. Instead, it's based on your business, certain conduct. Yep. So thank you. And I think it's harder in DeFi and some of these evolving sectors. So maybe you can just sort of describe DeFi for the listeners and then really what you think that they should be tracking in the coming year in that space. It's just been exploding this year, but where do you think it's going? So I always define DeFi as a way to disintermediate and decentralize legacy financial products, legacy financial institutions, legacy financial concepts, sort of like a new way to think of wealth management. But wealth management includes banking, lending, trading, options, you know, uh, those types of things. It has definitely been exploding even since uh, the pandemic started back in March. We've seen a huge uptick in DeFi. 
you know, maybe it's a coincidence because that's when it really began taking off, but maybe there's also this appetite for thinking of a new way to be involved in financial services. It's definitely true of the VCs because we've seen a lot of VC backing. In terms of what to track, there's a whole new spate of what are called automated market makers coming out. Uniswap is one where you can, it's really a decentralized platform where there's a lot of trading of cryptocurrencies. So that's something to look at. I think thinking about new types of governance systems. So a lot of what these, what happens in DeFi is that you'll have a company do the software development deploy the protocol, and then shortly thereafter, be ready to step away and turn over governance of the protocol and the changing and amending and maintenance of it to the community. So I think thinking about governance will be really interesting going forward. Right now, we've seen a lot of governance by many. Right before this, you know, there was a whole thought about DAOs and maybe governance by few, you know, 20, 30, 40 people, you know, with the way the governance systems have been deploying of late with respect to Compound and Uniswap. It's been, you know, hundreds and thousands. But just to see how it's growing, I think is really interesting. And, uh, you know, we've just seen these huge purchases of Bitcoin, which is separate and apart from DeFi itself, but I think shows a real interest from true legacy financial institutions in crypto. And so I think that seeing legacy, true legacy finance find ways to integrate and use these DeFi protocols is something we should really look out for in the next I don't know, nine months to a year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. And and some of it, as it might come across some of our listeners' desks, because they're being asked to give advice, right? Mm -hmm. Or to help with a new product idea. Yeah. And you've been able to really build your career on being a traditional attorney, but now you're really sort of in the thick of the most innovative business models there are. So maybe you could explain how do you sort of measure out the advice you give? How do you yeah. put yourself, sort of check yourself where personally you might have a lower risk tolerance than your customers, right? Mm -hmm. Or your clients. And so that what the advice that you're giving is helpful to the business yeah. um, and really just brings the best of your traditional training as well as all the fun, innovative thinking you get to do in this space? That's a great question. Um, I take my traditional conservative training with me everywhere because in something where you're innovating and there may not be a clear compliance slash legal slash regulatory regime that says, oh, this type of company has to do X, Y, and Z, you need to both think of your client as a business, right? Who's making business decisions. And then also every business needs to think about how to balance mitigating risk and how to make sure that they can achieve their business objectives, regardless of what they are. And that this is a business that is competing with other businesses. So I typically give advice over a spectrum to say, if you want to be the most conservative and have the lowest amount of regulatory risk, here's what you need to do. And here are all the choices you can make across the spectrum, understanding that you have to, you know, deal with your business too. So frequently I'll say to a company, well, you can deploy your protocol and then you need to step away completely and do nothing with it. That's not frequently what they want to do as a business. 
Um, right. If you're thinking about running a decentralized platform, then it should be truly decentralized. And then you give them the layers off of what they can do. I guess you could do this. You can't do that. And you can iterate. Now, sometimes if you iterate, it could be a slippery slope. But, you know, I try to take it slow and steady and, you know, give them a menu of options, understanding that this may be on the riskiest side of things. And if that's what's best for your business, you've heard my whole thing from the super conservative traditional to, you know, what else there can be when you're thinking about building your business. Yeah. I like the optionality in that many risk personnel are a little bit hesitant to give recommendations, but if you're able to give all those options and the business potentially knows exactly what you're most comfortable with or what you think if you were pushed, you would choose, but it just shows how thoughtful you are because you're giving the options and you know what the options are. Yeah. Um, and I think it takes some of the friction that can come between the business and the risk personnel when you are dealing with some of these, these tough issues. So that's great advice. Thank you. Um, so let's, let's shift gears a little bit. Like we haven't really talked about enforcement and litigation, but yep. if you could think about, of course, maintaining any kind of confidentiality You've seen a lot in the litigation and the enforcement space. And what do you really see as the most harmful gaps in compliance programs? Many of our listeners are, are new compliance officers and that type of perspective into what you've seen is helpful. I haven't seen it in full force in terms of an enforcement realm, but I think what we really need to be thinking about and looking forward to is AML, KYC, and OFAC. I just think with respect to financial services and innovating in the financial technology space and the interest in privacy and anonymity, which lots of people have, there needs to be new and interesting ways to be thinking about handling AML, KYC on the one hand, and also with thinking about OFAC on the other. OFAC is very hard in certain ways if you're dealing with something like a blockchain-based you know, protocol because anyone can access it. But if you're also running a website um, for a user interface, you do have the ability to do something to comply with OFAC. Can you, you know, 100% comply with OFAC if you're running a user interface where the users are anonymous? No, that's impossible, right? You don't know. But you at least, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with showing you're a good actor and acting ethically. You need to take steps to geoblock, um, you know, to meet out VPNs if that is even possible and things like that to really show that you've been working towards compliance. But on the gap side of things, that's where the biggest gaps are, right? Everyone is thinking about securities laws, commodities laws, um, maybe some other state regs. But I think making sure you're complying with AML, KYC requirements and the Bank Secrecy Act generally is really, if you're a financial institution. So I'll put that to the side. But but you need, to, you need to ask yourself that threshold question. Am I a financial institution? Which a lot of, I think a lot of compliance officers or companies are not asking themselves that. And I think that's an important first step. Yeah, and the other, the other part that's, I think, of interest is you could be tagged with facilitating. Yeah. And that facilitating is a broad term, just as financial institutions are. It's, it's more than just banks. And it's yeah. such an interesting issue to track because, as you mentioned, there is that conflict between privacy yeah. and AML, KYC, in the same realm that we've seen with some new privacy laws in California, where 
you have security versus privacy, right? There's, there's so many evolving uh, trends, some of them conflicting with each other in the technology space. So, some, so definitely to watch in the coming year. Yeah. Um, anything else you would leave our listeners with as to what they should keep on their radar as they're planning for 2021? Yeah, I'll put that to the side for one second because I wanted to key off of something you said, which I think is really important, is this concept of facilitating, mm-hmm. um, right? Lots of compliance officers and lawyers think of primary liability only, mm-hmm. right? What am I liable for doing just myself as a company? But I think, and I've been thinking about for a long time, that with respect to almost every regulatory regime out there, there is some form of secondary liability. So what you said, facilitating, aiding and abetting, sure. um, however you want to think about it. And so as a compliance officer, I think that, or, and certainly an in-house GC, whatever it is, you should be thinking about whether you are facilitating other conduct that's illegal and then, you know, have secondary liability for that, including with respect to allowing your users to do things that may be unethical. Uh, or illegal. Yeah, it's like the overlap between what is ethical that we talked about, right? It it really does sort of merge with this facilitation um, or aiding and abetting liability too. Yeah, exactly. With respect to what to think about in 2021, lots of innovation. I'm excited to see what's going to come. I think there's a lot of money that's being put into innovation around financial services, and I'm super excited to see how our world continues to evolve. Great, yeah. We all need something to look forward to. And this really is an interesting and a fun space. So thank you so much for sharing your perspectives today. Okay, bye. Bye. Learn more about delivering a triple bottom line by visiting warburtonadvisors.com. And remember to share and like this podcast so others can find it more easily.